0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Becoming Better, the podcast dedicated to helping you become a better human being. I'm the host of this year's show, Chris Bailey. This is episode number 16, Becoming More Resilient. Today... I'm thrilled to welcome to the podcast my friend, and now yours, because he's on the podcast, Neil Pashrika. Neil writes about how we can live a more intentional life. And he's the author of eight books, including The Book of Awesome, The Happiness Equation, and now, it's out today, in fact, You Are Awesome, the book, but you're also also pretty great. Um, His books have sold over one million copies and have spent over 200 weeks on the bestsellers list. His latest one, You Are Awesome, is a guide to becoming more resilient. Now, I would encourage you, if you're listening to this right now, to pause the podcast, go to Amazon. Not yet. Wait, wait for me to finish this paragraph, but, but go to Amazon. Call up your local bookseller and place an order for this book. You are awesome, Neil Pashirika. Um it, because it's one of the most personal and vulnerable and entertaining and above all that, helpful books that uh, I've had the pleasure of reading in a long, long time. And it is also my great pleasure uh, to welcome to the podcast one of my favorite authors and just favorite people, the author of You Are Awesome, Neil Pashrika. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Yeah, it's, it's good to chat in an official capacity for the podcast. <laughs> I know, we've had a lot of unofficial chats. Yeah, that we didn't record. Maybe you recorded our, our unofficial chats. And no, I'm, them on I'm the against, internet.
1: I feel like the world is so much surveillance already. I try not to just dis- <laughs> record my friends' conversations without telling them.
0: Yeah, it's as a general rule, it's good not to record friends' conversations. Um, but nothing would make somebody more resilient than having their conversation recorded and posted online. Um, so this is a book about <laughs> resilience. You like that segue? That was really sweet. Thank you. Very smooth. I, I feel so... You know that that point where you become like so amused with yourself that you become fully. I think I'm there. Um, so so this is a book about resilience. And, and so to add a bit of context to this conversation that we're having, why what what is resilience and what makes it something that's worth striving for? Resilience is the ability to see the little sliver of light
1: right between the door and the frame after you hear the latch click a lot of people define it as the ability to get back up to recover but I like using that metaphor because oftentimes in life you will hear a latch click a job, uh, a relationship uh, a, a parent a friend, something devastating happens and if you can see that sliver of light or understand that this is something that is shaping and building you to a newer or greater whole then I think that is the true definition of resilience Mm. and what makes it worth striving for why should we strive to get better isn't that the name of your podcast yeah maybe <laughs> maybe you're like just double checking that you named it right i like that yeah uh, yeah becoming wait, wait, greater? Why, why is it important well here's the thing i always get back to this this is the root underpinning theme of every single thing i've ever done uh whether that's uh speeches i give whether that's books I write, it's just this fragility and infinitesimally short nature of life. I believe life is so small. You know, the average American mm. and Canadians are the same lives right now for 30,000 days. Okay. That number's actually never been longer, but when you hear it in days, it sounds super short because it is. Yeah. Okay. Now, if I told you, oh, yeah, and yeah, you, you also, you know, you sleep for a third of those. So you really got 20,000 days, period. So thank Mm -hmm. you for spending some of one of those 20,000 kind of waking moments with me. There's not that many of them. you know. Our species was around 200,000 years before you got here, and will be hopefully around a lot of hundreds of thousands of years after you leave. So you got a few days in the middle. And why is it important to get better? Why is it important to live intentionally? Because this is all you got. You better make sure that your relationships are tight and quality and you're speaking openly and you're speaking vulnerably. You better make sure that you were following your heart and Doing what you love and making sure that you're making the right decisions, you better make sure that you are like, can look back on your life from your deathbed and try to look back without regrets, without should and could and would I have or would I have not, you know, what would have done differently. The way to do that is to just be thoughtful about how you're living it. And so that's kind of why it's important to be resilient, because otherwise, that little. Breakup that you went through. I don't want to trivialize it, but when you were 16 and she dumped you or whatever, and if you never get back <laughs> up from that, then like you're done. Like you're never going to find love again. You're never going to maybe have children if that's what you want. You're never going to like reach your fullest potential as a human being. So you can't get like, I get, you know how many jobs I've been like dumped out of like, that didn't work for me? Mm-hmm. Like I, I remember when I got fired from Procter and Gamble, I thought my life, I thought I'd never get a job. I'd never get an office job. i never, I'd never meet anyone. I'd never meet any young professionals who I was, a, of course, supposed to get married to. If I thought that for too long, then I definitely wouldn't have you know what I'm saying, so resilience yeah. is the only thing that bridged me from that to now. I have had to recover. we all will have to resilience is the only
0: way to get better and reach your fullest potential yeah, you mentioned that that revelatory nature of uh, of this, and that was something that really struck me when I was reading the book, and you you write one of the strategies that you you provide is revealing to heal. And this is something that I love so much about the book is how revelatory it is. You open up uh, up in the book quite a bit more than personally. I would feel comfortable opening up in a book and, but you also share some stories about people who have opened up to you. What, what was the process of writing this? Like, what like, was it an emotional process or did it, did things flow naturally? How did it go? So
1: I'm 40
0: when I was 20, 20-
1: eight or twenty nine, I got a divorce that wasn't my choice and I lost my closest friend. But the divorce I wanna just focus on for a second here. At the same exact time that was happening, within the next year or so, I um I was invited to have lunch with Heather Reisman in downtown Toronto. So for those that don't know, Heather Reisman runs Indigo, which is the largest book chain in Canada by a mile. I think they have a vast majority of the book sales in the country. She invited yeah. me down to lunch and she said, Neil, I want to make the book of awesome. A Heather's pick. I want it to be hanging on every sign in everyone's bag. I want everyone to buy this book. I think it's fantastic. Why'd you write it? And I said to her, oh, well, actually I wrote it because my wife told me she didn't love me anymore and I felt bad about myself, so I was trying to cheer myself up. But I don't actually say that in the book. I don't actually tell anyone that. And no one will ever know that. And she's like, why not? And I was like, well... Well, I, you know, I, am too embarrassed. I don't want to say like, oh yeah, like my wife left me. So I wrote a book about like warm underwear and cold pillows. It just didn't <laughs> sound right to me. It wasn't in, in If you look at the book of awesome today it's 10 years later. It doesn't say that anywhere. It d- nowhere in the book does it reveal where it's created from. But then, you know, she was like in her, she, I think she was like 62, 64 or some, some of that at the time. So she's, you know, more than double my age. She looks at me, she's like, oh, but that's the story that will sell it. That's, that's why people will want to read it. And and, and her almost like disdain of me, like she was like disgusted that I wouldn't consider sharing that. I was like, (laughs) that's interesting. And so I then gained the courage to give a TED Talk at TEDx Toronto called The Three A's of Awesome. And in that TED Talk, for the first time ever, did I reveal the true origin of the Book of Awesome. Well, that was me feeling, I, I lost sleep for a month, Chris. Like, I mean, it was like what you said. I, I didn't feel comfortable. I lost sleep for a month. I practiced a hundred times. I was like, okay, am I really going to go on a stage and tell everyone about like my, my wife leaving me? Like, am I really going to do that? But honestly, yeah. after I did to this day, 10 years later, I still get emails almost every day from someone around the world saying, you know what? Thank you so much because I'm going through a divorce right now. I just lost a friend you know, you put into words something like, like the, what the resonance you get back when you put yourself out there way more than pays for the risk of putting yourself out there. And I learned that kind of in my late twenties and that doesn't mean it was easy. And I actually don't think that this writing is even that vulnerable. There's that I would like mm-hmm. to go in, in, in the future way more deeper, way, de- and I'm, I'm still discovering that within myself. So this is just another step down the path that I want to go on of, of, being increasingly vulnerable, increasingly open. You know, there's chapters in here where I talk about, well, we won't get in, well, maybe we will. Well, it depends on what you want to talk about. But I, I go I go so deep. But the thing is, in order to do that, it's because I then I now have faith that the world will catch me, if that makes any sense. I now have faith yeah. that whatever I put out there will then just bounce back to me in this magnetic kind of way, as a special way. That's why I couldn't read Michelle Obama's uh, autobiography. I, I read a chapter of it. My wife was reading it, and I was like, I looked at her, I was like, she doesn't really go deep. And she's like, yeah, she does, she does. And I'm like, yeah, but it's kind of like how she grew up. I'm like, I kind of want to know like the weird thoughts in her head and like what (laughs) she's embarrassed about and like what, you know, I want to hear something negative because of course she would have negative thoughts. Like where are they? And I actually now desire that and expect that so much of my friends – of the, of the work, of the writing I read, of the people I surround myself with, it almost has become a bit of an expectation because life's too short not to be super yeah. vulnerable and not to be super open. We don't have enough time for us to prance around and pretend we're perfect with perfect LinkedIn res- resumes and, and talk. We don't have time for that. If you aren't going to be open about what you suck at what you're learning about and how you feel about things, I don't have time for you because you're not going to make a connection. We aren't going to build the trust that's so critical to form deep relations i tell my male friends at the end of our phone calls like i love you man and like at first sometimes yeah. they're like they're like wow and i'm like yeah well like life's too short eric if i never talk to you again i want you to know eric that i love you and i just want those types of conversations to happen so that's why i did it and why i was so open in the book and i will also say as the title of the chapter suggests Reveal to Heal, that once you do reveal, you actually do heal it. Meaning that the stuff I was writing about in the book, by virtue of me writing about it and now publishing it, actually extricates it from my just under my skin, kind of where it was living. And it can kind of just like dissipate into the world, like a little bit of a cloudy smoke. And now I get to go into level. Now I get to go, next book. I get to go into my bones. You know what I mean? Like I can get to go hmm. a little deeper into what I'm thinking about Thoughts that I might not even admit to myself. I can maybe start to explore because I already went there. So now can I go a little bit there plus one?
0: Hmm. How, how do you feel now that the book's out in the world? Are you scared? Are you excited? Well,
1: that's the thing. It's like okay, so there's chapters in this book. I'll just say so. There's one chapter in the book I talk about um, how I had surgery when I was six weeks old and I lost a testicle. I didn't even know I had one testicle, or actually, I did. But I didn't know. I didn't know other people had two. Yeah. Okay. Until I was like in grade nine gym class, my uh, grade nine gym teacher made like a horrible joke. Like I squashed some guy's testicle in Eastern European bodybuilding tournament. We called him half a man. And like everyone started laughing, and I was like, "Oh my god!" I was filled with shame. I covered it up. I switched to boxer briefs. I like you know never let anyone see me naked and j- change room or anything like that. And for years, I even looked up, like, surgical implantations, and I discovered an entire closet industry of, like, getting marble or silicon, like, balls, basically fake wow. balls, into your ball set. It's huge because everyone who has one is ashamed of it. So this is the thing. And then I wrote – then all of a sudden it's, like, flash forward time four. Then I just wrote about it in a book that's getting published. <laughs> and guess what, man? I don't feel worried about that anymore. It really <laughs> – did work. It's not something I think about anymore. It's just totally gone as a thing, as a worry, as a sort of fragile thought. The process of writing it out reveals it. And by the way, we didn't even get into what this chapter suggests, but the chapter creates a daily, the purpose of this chapter of You Are Awesome is to, of course, create a little daily practice for everybody to just write down, I will let go of, I am grateful for, and I will focus on every day. There's research behind each one of those three statements. It takes two minutes to do. And if you can just write down something you will let go of every morning in a book, in a journal, in a piece of paper, you will find that you will start to go deeper and have less worry about those little superficial anxieties that we all carry with us throughout the day. And I don't mean to call them superficial, like in a judgmental way. I just mean like, we all have, we all were. Nope. I just spoke to an incredibly good looking organization and I said to them on stage, "Nobody here thinks you're good. Nobody here thinks they're good looking." And everybody laughed because it's true. Because we all have Instagram, and everyone is prettier than us, and everyone
0: thinks there's something wrong with how they look. It's horrible. Yeah. You. you should, one of my favorite uh, stories from the book that you shared is somebody opening up to you. Uh, on an airplane that you were with,
1: yeah. So I sat beside this guy on a plane. You know how this is. You're like chatty, like me. So like you end up connecting with these strangers on airplanes, and it's awesome because you're never gonna see them again, right? So you're like, <laughs> I could tell this person, any- I could be a different person. Now, you know, not that you do yeah. that, but you're sort of like, wow, it's just su- you can get super vulnerable super quickly because there's no extrinsic sort of baggage. Uh yeah. again I'm not sure. Sometimes without
0: so much as learning their first name even. Exactly.
1: In this case I didn't even learn the guy's first name. And I was and I was interesting, I was careful not to ask for it. Because I didn't want to shatter the thin veneer of trust that we had created. So I thought if I said, like, what's your business card? And then suddenly he's revealed his identity to me. So I just call him in the book the bald bearded consultant. By the way, <laughs> in earlier drafts of the book he was called the bald consultant, and my editor thought that was derogatory it's <laughs> like what's wrong with bald <laughs> yeah. i'm going bald it's nothing wrong with bald she's like you can't him a bald consultant i was like bald, oh, okay we, we know that you,
0: beard's good
1: apparently yeah i was like okay they well fine bald bearded she's like okay that's a pass <laughs> uh i'm 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 just kidding i love my editor i was just like it's just one of the funny back and forth we had on the buck. anyway he ends up confessing to me that he thinks he's smarter than his wife And he worries that that's why they aren't connecting intellectually. And he worries that he should get a divorce. And after he revealed that to me, and I, of course, I share the story in the book in a little bit more color than I just did now on this podcast. He then collapses back into his seat and looks at me and he's just like, oh, thank you. Like what I felt emanating from that guy was just like this giant piece of metal shrapnel was like tugged out of his chest you know he revealed yeah. something that he hadn't told anyone before and it had it had become like it had metastasized into something you know full of energy in his chest that he couldn't get rid of just by revealing it to me he released it craziest thing happened though uh, this is like I was going to school In Boston for two years So this is like I was taking the same flight Back and forth all the time Crazy, this mm-hmm. happened Like six months later A year later I can't remember what it was I bumped into the same guy again <laughs> It was like I was getting off the plane Toronto to Boston And he was getting on the plane Trying to Boston to Toronto And I saw him The kind of way you do When you're walking off a plane There's people waiting Yeah So I saw him And I like walk right up to him And as I walked up to him I could see his face look like stricken With like horror and I couldn't read it, but it was something like I got the sense that he stayed stay with his wife and maybe he thought differently, maybe upon reflection, once he had revealed that he realized that that was a, a thought that he wasn't proud of and didn't agree with, or he stayed together for the kids or for the money. Who knows? All I could tell from his face was that he was horrified that that thought existed and was alive and was out there. And as a result, I did not say anything to him. I got very close to him, but then I kept walking and I sensed that that's what he wanted. And now I really have never seen seen him again. Um, why do I mention that? Well, it's because we used to have a place for confession. In Catholicism, we called it the Catholic Confession Chamber. You know, the mobster gets down on his knees and says, Bless be Father, for I have sinned. I... I put Big Tony in a vice under the deli and it banged his wife. You know what I'm saying? Like You can picture that yeah. from the mobster movies, but it's not just Catholicism. It's also Buddhism, Mormonism, uh, Islam, Judaism. Most world religions have a form of confession built into them. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your view, the fastest growing religion in the world is actually no religion, meaning that this, the percent of people who are living in a secular society is just dramatically increased. Therefore, in addition to the loss of The community aspects of church, we're losing the confessional aspects of church. So there are things like postsecret.com, this website that I mentioned in the book, and I tout, and Frank Warren, who runs it's a friend of mine. It's like he's he's collected, Chris, over a million anonymous postcards mailed to him from strangers of people confessing stuff, okay? yeah. So this two-minute morning practice is my attempt to build resilience by revealing something every morning to yourself, extricating it from your mind crystallizing and injecting it from your head and there's a big piece of research behind this from Science Magazine called Don't Look Back in Anger that shows that when you do this when you actually crystallize and inject your anxiety you live with less regret and more contentment okay mm. so I probably don't need to go into the research on why writing down I am grateful for and I will focus on for you Mr. Hyperfocus is valuable but those two things also are backed by a lot of research but anyway that's the two minute morning practice
0: to strengthen Beautiful. your mind for the day Something you're grateful for, something to focus on, something to let go of. Yes, that's right. Mm. What what fi- what things do you find yourself letting go of each day? Oh my gosh, uh, lots of bodies. I gained five pounds
1: over the holidays. Comparison issues? Oh my gosh. Like my books, I know that you're releasing this podcast on the day my book comes up, but that means we're recording it before. So guess who's Amazon ranking them? Check? You know what I'm saying? Like I will let go of comparing yeah. myself to uh, Tim Ferriss. I uh, let go of comparing my, my Amazon ranking to Marie Forleo or, or Ryan Holiday, Pick whoever's higher than me. It's what my brain does. It's not just my brain, all of our brains. Our brains want to look for things better than ours. We are an evolutionary species looking to survive, so of course we do. But as a result of that tendency, I, like everybody else, is under the, 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 the view, especially driven by social media and the internet, that everyone's living an awesome life except me. Right? Yeah. Like no matter how good the dinner we had together, Chris, was last time I saw you, like if I turned on Instagram right afterwards, somebody's at a lobster buffet in the Maldives. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? You can never win.
0: Damn them. Yeah, that that won't compare to our tacos. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks for remembering what we ate. Yeah. So, so uh, those are some of the things I write about. But, but I can also write about like I I will let go of the fact that I yelled at my three year old yesterday, mm. and I wonder in my head like, am I messing him up? Is he going to need therapy for the fact that he has an angry dad? I'm actually not an angry dad, but I did snap because, of course, I was trying to get them to school, and like it was taking half an hour, and I'm like, get your shoes on. Right? And then I'm like, I immediately feel bad about that and I like write about it the next day.
0: This is so, this is very much in my eyes kind of an internal book. You know, finding ways to uh, approach the problems that we're facing differently, thinking about them differently, reframing them differently, connecting that with the science. And one one thing that I love that you talk about is the stories that we tell ourselves. We so often have this uh, dialogue that we have with ourselves over the span of the day, especially... When we go through experiences that require some modicum of resilience. So so you chat a a bit in the book about some questions we can ask ourselves to become more resilient, especially around telling ourselves different stories. Uh, What uh, role do the stories we tell ourselves play in how resilient we are? Sure. Well,
1: so just to say for everybody listening... um, (sighs) This was really hard for me to, so I mentioned like maybe five or 10 minutes ago, the whole thing about me having one ball and I have one ball, but the stories I was telling myself were far worse than that because I was telling myself I'm disfigured. I have no chance of mating. I will never get married. I will never have children. I can't play uh, contact sports because if I lose the other one, then I'm done. You know what I mean? I might need injections of testosterone. Like, these are all stories that I had sort of lacquered on to the sort of core much more small truth at the center of that. And my point in this chapter of the book is that we all do that. So, you know, you say you, you failed biology, but you think I failed my parents. Or you are an alcoholic, but you think nobody will trust me. And I say in the book, there's three questions you have to ask yourself. Number one is, will this matter on my deathbed? Start with that. Zoom out. Life is short. It's 30,000 days. But very rarely do we get the perspective of looking back on our lives from the end of yeah. our lives that often you know, uh, reduces the worry we have. The second thing is, can I do something about this? I mean, I got one ball. I can't do anything about that. I just can't. You, know like you I mean? get the marble
0: something, thing. Uh, no, that doesn't different. give me another ball, though. That's the thing. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
1: it, it, it actually feeds into the shame I have. Right. Yeah. That's the thing. It actually polishes it up. It actually makes it a bigger deal in my head. Instead, I yeah. actually need to do the opposite way and learn to live with it. Learn that it's Band-Aid not a big solutions. deal. Right, right, right. So can I do something about it is really nice. It's relieving to know that you either, if you can do something about it, well, then you can, so your problem's solved. And if you can't, well then you can't. So your problem's solved. Like you can't so either way, <laughs> just asking that question helps you get to the place of like I either can do something and solve it or I can't do something and therefore it's again solved because by virtue of the nature that nothing can be completed. And then the third question is, is this a story I'm telling myself? Like is is I fail my parents a story? What's the truth? I fail biology. So we have to keep it's a process of husking away all the things that we're saying to ourselves to get to that. And I feel like I didn't answer your question. So you can ask it again if I missed it.
0: No, no, I I think that that exactly covers it. Those three kind of prompts when you find yourself immersed in a story, will this matter on my deathbed? Uh, can I do something about this is Is this a story that i 'm telling myself um, there, there was one I, I know that Arden is always so hard on me when when I go over the thirty minute threshold of a podcast so i, I promise to keep this to, to under thirty for her uh, but there 's one story that we absolutely have to share there, there's a there's what one of the stories that you share in the book I, I read the chapter. And Arden and I were actually on our honeymoon. I think I sent you a picture of of the book. You did um, it, it, on that beautiful, beautiful uh, view in Greece, and, and and I remember this story striking me because I, I could relate so much to it. And I, I handed it to Arden. I said, "You have to, you have to read this right now. Stop, stop reading that that book on on data science. And that book is that that story is the life changing lesson that you got uh, from a guy by the name of John." MacArthur, Would you be able to tell that story for folks?
1: Sure. I got into Harvard Business School uh, in 2005. And when you go into your master's program, they ask not your parents how much money they make, but you how much money you make. And since I was super poor and I pretty much had no money, they were like, congratulations, you got the John MacArthur Fellowship which is like this free tuition you get if you like are poor and Canadian somehow. (laughs) Turns out John (laughs) MacArthur was the, the former dean of Harvard Business School and he was a Canadian. He was the dean from 1980 to 1995. So when I got to campus, I wrote him a letter saying thank you so much for this scholarship. I wrote him like a big long letter telling him all about my life. Then his office called me and said he'd like to have lunch with you. We don't get many super long letters like this. So I go, I'm super nervous. It's my first like week or two on campus. I'm already kind of a wreck because of that. And then I go meet the dean, like the former dean for lunch one on one. Yeah. And he's like, So how's how's life? How's school? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's so stressful. He's like, Why? I'm like, Well, first of all, the school itself is stressful. Like I have to do all this homework and all read all these cases and I'm super nervous and it's all participation. But then every it's like it's September. It's September. School just started. And every single night we're all being invited to go have dinner and get beers with these millionaire banker and consultants working for big fancy companies in the hopes that they will like us and we one day can become millionaire bankers and consultants too. It's really stressful, like applying for all these jobs and like interviews. Like I, I can't handle this, it's only September. And he's like, oh, you're like a guy outside the beach. You're standing at a fence outside the beach. You're looking in, there's 10 sunbathing beauties. Make them any gender you want. But there's 10 sunbathing beauties inside that beach. Problem is, outside the beach, there's a thousand other guys just like you. And when they open the gate to that beach, you're all going to run in hoping to woo over or seduce one of these 10 sunbathing beauties. So then, they, then he says, your odds of winning any of them over are so low. And if you do, you win a life full of torture and pain. All you'll be doing is looking over your shoulder at who else is coming to try to win them over. So I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? He's like, well, get off the beach. Go find the nerd at the library. I was like, what do you mean? In practical terms, what does this mean? He's like, don't look for a job here with fancy companies, Google, Goldman Sachs, flying here in private jets. I'm not sure if those companies were the ones. I'm just throwing names out there. It was like the big fancy companies with private jets flying in. He's like, call up the broken companies. The bankrupt companies, the ones that have fallen a hard time, the ones that threw a PR problem, the ones that had a layoff last year. Because if you get into those companies, they will invite you into important meetings, they will give you big jobs, they will give you a seat at the table, they will want to learn from you, they will let you learn faster and you will go further than anywhere else. Your ability to essentially be a big fish in a small pond will increase your academic self-concept or how you view yourself and that will take you up and up. I left that lunch and I never applied for a single job through the school again, which is crazy to think about. I mean, if you were there, it's like the career services department is kind of like huge. There's all kinds of like moving pieces. That's a big, 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 big thing to say no to. Instead, I made an Excel yeah. spreadsheet of a hundred companies I wanted to work for that had no presence on campus. They were like blockbuster video or whatever it was at the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Kmart, are you hiring? Right. So then. I, uh, I called those companies up. I ended up getting into one of them. It was ended up being Walmart. They had gone through a lot of PR problems, as probably everybody knows. A very flat stock price for 10 years, but they took me on. And turns out when I got there, I had a, a, a different background with my degrees and all that stuff that was different than anyone. I wasn't surrounded by like a table of PhDs from MIT. I was like, I was the only one that was like, hey, here's, you know, there's a new research study about that. Or like, did you see this article in Harvard Business Review? Because it actually talks about this problem we're having. We can maybe use this, we can maybe use like Strengths Finder because there's an article about that. And people are like, "What? what's that? And it wasn't like I knew more than them. In fact, I, I knew much, 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 much less than them. It was just that what I knew was different and different is better than better. By becoming a big fish in a small pond, we know from the research your academic self-concept or how you view yourself goes goes up. But the interesting thing about the research says it stays up for up to 10 years after you leave the pond. So that was really good for my broken confidence that was shattered when I left Procter, Procter & Gamble in a mitt full of tears you know, years earlier. And yeah. it is a lesson that I have since applied to every single facet of my life. And I think I used the model in the book where it was the keynote speaking industry when I was invited to join like give paid speeches, they were like, oh, you got to get paid this much. And I'm like, oh, that's a lot of money. Who gets paid that much? And they're like, oh, New York Times bestselling authors, Olympic gold medalists, you know, rock star professors. And I was like, oh yeah, I heard of all those people. They're way better than me. And they were like, no, 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 you're, they're, you're good too. And I was like, what's the cheapest price range you got? And they were like, yeah, like way down here. And I'm like, who's in that price range? And they named a bunch of people. And I didn't, the thing with Chris was, I never heard of anything of before. So I was like, oh, put <laughs> yeah. me there. So it, basically what happened <laughs> was I quote unquote got my reps in or I got to practice at like local boardrooms of like 30 people heading up a nonprofit instead hmm. of at that higher price range. Um, which would be like Vegas casinos with like a thousand people in them, you know what I mean, like a much more discerning audience with higher expectations and like a lot more pressure, so my confidence went up as then I moved up
0: kind of through my speaking career beautiful yeah it's uh that that was one that I still think of you know when, when am I with the crowd, and uh can I look the other direction it's it, 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 for anyone listening to this, if you didn 't pause the podcast at the beginning and and you haven't yet picked up the book uh, I'd highly recommend it. The book is called You Are Awesome. Neil Pasricha is joining us on the podcast. So a few tactical things to take away here. Uh, check out Neil's uh, TED Talk, The Three A's of Awesome. It's really, really good. Uh, it has millions of views. It's right on ted.com if, if you want to find it. And uh, it, it's, it's a good way to spend 15 minutes of your time. Uh, every day, that ritual, what are you grateful for? What will you focus on? What will you let go of? Uh, those questions around the story. Will this matter on my deathbed? Is this something? Uh, is there anything I can do about this, or is this a story I'm telling myself? And in, in what situations are you in? Uh, is the crowd doing one thing? Can you look the other way? What's over there? Because often, as as Neil says, uh, different is better than better. Uh, so Neil, it's awesome to have you on the show. The the question I like to end every conversation with because it fits with the theme of the podcast Uh, what is one thing that you are working on becoming better at right now definitely
1: being a better dad I need to remember that when I'm with my children the only thing to do is to be with (laughs) them I don't need to make Hmm. them perfect I don't need to tell them to do something certain ways I just have to be with them and that's something that I haven't learned yet, but I'm trying to get better
0: at. Beautiful. Neil Pashrika. thanks for coming on the podcast. Love you, man. I love you too. Thanks for having me. So finishing up becomingbettershow.com is where you can find the corresponding blog article for this episode. I hope you have a wonderful week and we'll see you in a couple Tuesdays.